Hello and welcome. This is 21. Episode 11.1 The First Internet You finally arrive in Alexandria. The year is 42 BC. You are a doctor from far off India. A mysterious disease has begun sweeping through yours and the neighboring villages, killing men, women, and children alike. Everything that you and your colleagues have attempted so far has failed. The people keep dying and you are completely dumbfounded as to why. You've tried everything. Nothing has worked. But then some good news. A trader from far off Babylon tells you and the village leaders about a great city far to the west. In this city, there is a collection of information, a library, greater than anywhere else on the planet. There is more information there than any one man can learn in a lifetime, even though some try. He doesn't know if something there could help you and your problem with this new disease, but he says that if there was anywhere in the world that would have such information, this city called Alexandria would be that place. While this news is welcome, you are unsure as to how you'll get there. Such a trip would be very expensive, time-consuming, and potentially pointless. By the time you got there, found what you needed, and came back, the entire village could be dead. So you don't plan on a trip. But the elders of the village come to you and say that the villagers have donated some money to pay for a trip to Alexandria for you and another doctor. They are desperate to stop this disease, and they will do almost anything to stop it. You begin immediately prepping for the journey. You find a ship with a captain who knows how to get to Alexandria. He is expensive as anticipated, but you are able to negotiate the price down in exchange for taking care of the crew while on this journey. The trip is long, and it feels even longer by your growing sense of urgency. You know that your family, friends, and fellow village members are fighting for their lives and are relying on you. After three weeks, what seems like an eternity, you finally reach a port in the deserts of Egypt. It's bustling, ships come and go, and caravans are there, waiting to be hired to take you and your colleague to Alexandria. Surprisingly, there are plenty of people here who speak Persian, while this is not your native language, you know enough Persian to hire a caravan to take you to Alexandria. It's a fairly short journey from this port to Alexandria. It's just a few days. After a month to the day since you left home, you arrive in Alexandria. You feel estranged in this massive city. Off in the distance towards another sea, you can see what has to be the biggest lighthouse in the world. But this is no time for sightseeing. You have to get to this library and see if you can find something that will be helpful for you and your people. You ask one of the men who led the caravan to take you to the library. But he says he doesn't need to. It's easy. Just follow the wide stone road you're on towards the lighthouse. When you begin to smell the sea, turn left. You won't be able to miss it. He mounts his camel, 
turns back the direction you came from, and hustles off. With only one option in front of you, you do what the man says. You and your fellow doctor stay on the wide stone road. You pass all manner of people and buildings. You are in awe as to the size and scale of the city. It seems like with every step you take, you hear a new language, see someone different, and smell something foreign. Eventually, you begin to see more and more people carrying scrolls, sheets of paper, and writing stuff on small tablets. You know you must be close. As you begin to smell the sea, you spot what can't be the library you're looking for. But it has to be. There are people everywhere with scrolls. Even here from the street, you can see inside. You can see shelf after shelf piled high with scrolls, books, and even some stone or clay tablets. This has to be the library. But it was way bigger than you imagined it could be. It's more of a complex or a village than a single building. This library is honestly bigger than your village back in India. There are numerous buildings, connected by archways and covered paths, each one seemingly holding more scrolls than the previous. Amazed, you see signs written in your native Indian language. They point to a section of the library holding writings in your native language. Still in awe, you find one on medicine. It's a dual text, translated from some foreign language into yours. After reading for a few hours, you find exactly what you're looking for. Cures for diseases and sickness. You quickly copy the information on a scroll you picked up at the entrance. As you roll the original back up and replace it to its spot on the shelf, you can't help but marvel at all the information that must be stored here. This has to be the greatest library to ever exist. All the knowledge of mankind is somewhere within these walls. While that final assessment might be a bit over the top, such a reaction was probably common amongst those who first walked into the eleventh wonder of the ancient world, the great library of Alexandria. But as always, before we get to the wonder itself, context first. Now since we just covered Alexander's campaign and the founding of Alexandria a few episodes ago when we covered the Great Lighthouse, I will not go into any details about that here. If you would like a refresher, I recommend you go back and listen to episode 8.1 again. But as Alexandria continued to grow and grow, it became the cultural center of the world. Close to Mesopotamia, founded by a Greek and built in Egypt, Alexandria was the perfect melting pot for the ancient world. It did not matter who you were, where you came from, who you worshipped, or what your social status was. Alexandria had a place for you. What helped the growth of Alexandria was the conquest of Tyre by Alexander the Great. The former capital of the Phoenicians, Tyre was the great trade depot of the ancient world up till its collapse. With this giant hole in the ancient world's economy, Alexandria quickly grew to fill that void. This was why the Great Lighthouse was built. But Alexandria had a strategic geographical advantage compared to Tyre. It not only was on the Mediterranean, but it was close to the Nile and the Red Sea. This enabled traders, scholars, and etc. from southern Africa, 
Arabia, Persia, and even places like India and China easier access to the rest of the ancient world. Sea travel in the ancient world was much easier and smoother than land travel, especially if you had cargo with you. The location of Alexandria brought many different faces into the ancient world than had previously been there, which was perfect for the Greeks. Even in the ancient world, they were famous for their desire for knowledge and wisdom. And Alexander was the perfect example. He was very meticulous throughout his conquest of the Persian Empire. He required many of his high officials to record everything that they came across, geography, cultures, rituals, religions, medicine, agriculture, etc. Anything that was new to the Greeks, Alexander ordered it written down. This explosion of both Greek power and new information was tantalizing to the Greeks. Their thirst for new knowledge had a new well to drink from. And this well was deep. If only there was a way to make it easier for every Greek man to gain access to this knowledge. When Alexander died suddenly and General Ptolemy took control of Egypt, it didn't take long for the turmoil created by Alexander's death to start having an effect on the ancient world. Most notably here for us was the fall from grace for one Demetrius of Phalerion. Now who was Demetrius of Phalerion? Demetrius was an Athenian politician, but more importantly, he was also a member of one of the most prestigious schools in Athens, called the Peripatetic School. But in the sudden chaos of Alexander's death and the reshaping of his empire, Demetrius fell from his place of power in Athens. And especially in the ancient world, a fall from power usually meant a death sentence, or at least exile. So Demetrius fled Athens and came to Egypt. Ptolemy I gave him refuge and began to tap into his vast knowledge and experience before eventually making him an advisor. It wasn't long after that that Demetrius was given a monumental task by Ptolemy. Aware of Demetrius's own personal thirst for knowledge, as well as the Greeks in general, and the amount of massive information collected by Alexander during his campaigns, Ptolemy I charged Demetrius with the specific task of creating a universal library. This library would contain all of the information in the world. But even with such a grand proposal, what the end result would be would be greater than anyone could imagine. It would become the greatest collection and concentration of information in the world, in history, until the founding of the internet. For such a project, Ptolemy spared no expense. We are told by Irenaeus, a Greek Christian living in the second century AD, that Ptolemy's desire was to equip, quote, his library with the writings of all men, as far as they were worth serious attention, end quote. In the letter of Aristeus, written in the second century BC, not too long after the library was founded, we are told that, quote, Demetrius, had at his disposal a large budget in order to collect, if possible, all the books in the world. To the best of his ability, he carried out the king's objective." End quote. Demetrius was determined to fulfill his charge, and there would be no book or collection of books 
that was beyond his reach. By any means necessary, Demetrius began collecting books, tablets, and anything else that had writing on it to determine if it deserved a place in the library. One of the biggest and best acquisitions for Demetrius were the books of Aristotle. To be able to read the writings of Aristotle in whole would have been amazing. But how Demetrius came to possess them is a bit of a mystery. There are two conflicting accounts. One states that Ptolemy II paid a large sum of money to have the books brought to the growing library at Alexandria. The other account, written by the Greek historian Strabo, states that the books of Aristotle were passed around the lands for all to read before being confiscated by the Romans in the first century BC and taken to Rome. While there is certainly an argument to be made for both sides, I personally believe that Ptolemy II bought the books of Aristotle and brought them to the Library of Alexandria. I don't see why this would not have happened. Such precious writings like those of Aristotle would have been worth so much to the Greeks that they wouldn't have wanted those being toted around from land to land. They might fall into the wrong hands, or someone may be desperate and use them to start a fire. Does this mean that some of the writings were taken to Rome at a future date? Quite possibly. Julius Caesar himself might have found them interesting and taken some back to Rome with him after his visit to Alexandria. But I believe that the Ptolemies were able to purchase the books of Aristotle to place them in the library. Such a renowned work of writing would have elevated the library status from a mere backyard project to a serious center of learning, wisdom, and knowledge. But the lengths that the Ptolemies went to acquire books for the library did not stop there. They even went as far as to search every ship that came and docked in Alexandria's massive harbor. This would have been a monumental task, as hundreds of ships would come and go each week. But any book that was found was confiscated, reviewed, and then either returned, if it didn't contain any information that the Greeks wanted, or it was kept and placed in the library. Kind of a low blow, as sea travel in the ancient world was very long, and books were a great way to pass the time. But the Greeks' desire for knowledge was insatiable now. The conquest of Alexander had opened the floodgates, and the Greeks were more than willing to let this flood carry them wherever it did. Another interesting account was written by Galaean, a Greek physician, surgeon, and philosopher in the Roman Empire. He recorded how King Ptolemy III was able to add the original texts of three of the greatest Greek poets of antiquity. The originals were held in Athens, and the Athenians were incredibly wary of lending them out to anyone. So much so that they required a massive collateral put up against the texts. But that didn't matter. King Ptolemy III told the Athenians that he only wanted to borrow the texts so that they could be copied, and then the copies placed in the library with the originals being returned to Athens. Of course, the opposite happened. The originals were kept in Alexandria, with the copies being returned to Athens. Fully aware that he was forfeiting his deposit of 15 talents of silver, or over $250,000 in today's money, Ptolemy III had the same mentality as his forebears. No price was too high to pay to get the greatest books from the ancient world into this massive and impressive library. 
the library was becoming so well stocked with the greatest writings of the ancient world that it began to take on the title that we are familiar with it today, the Great Library. As the Great Library continued to grow, one thing that grew with it was the inclusion of other languages and the attempted translating of texts. The majority of writings in the Great Library were written in Greek. That was the common language of the day. But what to do about writings that were found or brought to Alexandria that were written in another language? One of the other obvious languages there in Alexandria was Egyptian. There were hundreds of thousands of scrolls, carvings, tablets, and etc. written in ancient Greek hieroglyphics or Coptic. So the Greeks and Egyptians sat down and began translating writings from Egyptian to Greek, and probably the other way as well. This way, people who could only read their language would be able to enjoy the greatest Greek writings without them having to learn Greek. It also was most likely that one of the greatest archaeological finds ever, which unlocked the ancient world, the Rosetta Stone, was carved at the Great Library of Alexandria. All manner of texts from all over the world began to be brought to Alexandria for translation. One of the main groups of writings to be brought were religious texts. Jewish scholars from Judea brought down copies of the Torah for translation. This was the first time ever that the Torah, which had been written about a thousand years earlier, could be read in a common language. But it wasn't just the Torah that they brought. They also brought the Septuagint. The Septuagint was pretty much the Old Testament that we still have today. Many of the books of the prophets are in it. And it was here in Alexandria that the first quote-unquote Old Testament was composed. The Septuagint has still survived to this day, and it is an invaluable resource to ancient biblical scholars and historians alike. Other religions brought their texts from much further than Judea to Alexandria to have them translated. Indian Buddhists came to Alexandria to have their texts translated. There were even extensive books written and translated on Zoroastrianism, the religion of the fallen Persian Empire. As the collection of writings continued to grow and grow, men also began to write down accounts of ages past. A Chaldean priest from Old Babylonia wrote an extensive history on Babylon. Other histories of ancient peoples both near and far were either written down for the first time or translated into Greek so people could understand ages past. Writings on astronomy, medicine, agriculture, geography, the human body, burial rituals, religions, etc. added to this already bulging collection. But the Great Library at Alexandria was beginning to run into a few problems. With so much material, they were running out of room to store it all. And the scholars, scientists, doctors, and astronomers who came to study there needed a space where they could work in peace. This led to an add-on being made to the Great Library, called the Moseon, or the Museum. The Moseon provided an appropriate space for the library to become the scholarly center of the world. Both the library and the Moseon were close to the sea and within the palace grounds, putting them under the direct supervision of the pharaoh. 
The Museon provided space for the scholars, doctors, historians, and astronomers to have space to experiment, examine, and discuss what they were reading from the books of the Great Library. But despite this add-on, the Great Library was still collecting books faster than it could store them. In order to continue the growth of the Great Library, Pharaoh Ptolemy III built another smaller library in the southern part of Alexandria. This library would certainly have held some of the least important texts. Not to say that any of the texts at the Great Library were unimportant, but anything deemed of high value would have been kept close to the palace at the Great Library. The collection of books at the Great Library was the greatest collection of the ancient world, and possibly the greatest collection until the invention of the internet. What the extent of the collection was, we can never know. One of the earliest surviving reports comes to us from the 3rd century AD, which says that there were 200,000 books housed at the library. A medieval report written by a Byzantine in the 12th century AD said that, quote, 42,000 books in the outer library, the inner royal library 400,000 mixed books, plus 90,000 unmixed books, end quote. This report, if you add them all up, is more than 500,000 books. But the highest estimate that we still have a record of today was written between the 2nd and 4th centuries AD and says that there were more than 700,000 books in the Great Library. If any of these numbers are close, this is an obscene amount of books, particularly for the ancient world where any collection of books was rare. Personally, I believe the highest number to be the closest. At its height, I believe the Great Library of Alexandria could have housed more than a million books. The entire library complex would have been bulging. Most of these books were not like books that we know today with bindings and covers. Most of these were scrolls that would have been wound up to fit into smaller spaces. So one million books is not out of the question. Keeping track of that many books was a monumental task. A task that we don't have time to discuss today. But next week, we will look at what a scribe would have had to do in service at the Great Library. Keeping track of all those books must have been a logistical nightmare. But sadly, that is not the only nightmare about the Great Library. We will also look at the sad, rather short history of this magnificent wonder, and how the lust for power and a kingdom divided would spell the end of the Great Library at Alexandria. Oh,